Hello, and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast, brought to you in partnership with Boris Effects and our sponsored Jump Desktop. I'm Steve Hallfish. I'm a working film and TV editor, and for the last eight years, I've done more than 380 interviews with the world's best editors. I've been using Boris Effects products for more than 20 years, and I'm proud to partner with them to bring you great filmmaking content. Today on Art of the Cut, Billy Fox ACE discusses editing Devotion, the dramatic film about the first black naval pilot during the Korean War. Billy has been on Art of the Cut in the past to discuss Only the Brave, Dolomite is My Name, and Straight Outta Compton. Other features include Hustle and Flow, Coming to America, and Footloose. TV series include FBI and Chicago Fire, Law and Order, Band of Brothers, and let's not forget Pee-wee's Playhouse. Before I hop into our discussion with Billy, a brief thank you to our sponsors. Jump Desktop is a high-performance and secure app that lets you virtually connect to your editing bay as if you were physically there. Keep all your assets in one place and connect to your powerful editing bays from anywhere. Jump Desktop's high-performance remote desktop protocol lets you edit from any low-powered laptop. With end-to-end encryption, native support for macOS and Windows, and multi-monitor support, you can be productive from anywhere. Jump Desktop also has collaborative screen sharing for collaboration with your team. See what thousands of editors have been using to get their work done from across the world. Visit jumpdesktop.com cut to begin your free no limits 14 day trial today. And to our partner, Boris Effects. I've been using Boris Effects and Sapphire for more than 20 years, so they're not just a sponsor to me. I feel like they've been a partner in my cutting room for decades, helping me to deliver on the creative vision of my clients, directors, and producers. For all of us, our work is about bringing a creative idea to the screen. And for me, Boris Effects is one of the important tools that I use to do that. To see how they can help you on your latest project, head over to borisfx.com and check out the Boris Effects suite, which includes Sapphire, Continuum, Mocha Pro, Silhouette, and Optics, all in a low-cost monthly or annual subscription. If you want to read this interview with great visual support, you can go to either borisfx.com slash artofthecut, all one word, or borisfx.com slash AOTC. That site also has other great filmmaking content, so keep that bookmarked. And now, Billy Fox, ACE, on Devotion. Billy, man, it is so good to talk to you again. Every time I know I get a chance to talk to Billy Fox, man, good day. We've had good times doing these. Yeah. We have. Thank you so much for doing this. Devotion was a great film. Really enjoyed it. Congratulations. I got a couple of questions for you. One is about building that opening leading into the locker room discussion. Everything that happens before you meet our heroes. Talk to me about building that opening sequence, if you can recall that. It was a process that we went through really wonderful when you can lay out all of your key characters and get to know them and understand who they are in familiar faces and that everyone has an important line. There were actually a couple of beats that we cut out, actual scenes, but we felt we needed to get into the guys quicker. Ultimately, when Jesse comes in that initial meeting between Tom and Jesse, and then the rest of the boys come in, it's that wonderful, making sure everyone's established. You see a little bit of personality, old character. You start to get to know them. It took a lot of doing, but it was shot beautifully. It's interesting that you said there's a clock ticking that you, hey, we got to get to the guys. That's this moment we're trying to get to. 
Are you feeling that as you're cutting? I know the basic layout of it. And for me, until you have a beginning, middle, and an end, it's just throwing things in. Once you've got this mass of clay, then you start shaping and you start manipulating. When we got to that place and the boys were all there, just keeping them all alive is hard to a certain extent because you've got, at that point, you've got two over there, two here. So it's a lot of people around the room to keep alive and make it organic. Not that any of the shots feel like you're forcing it in, but that they're all involved. And you see a little glow, finding those little beats that have to dig out, but they pay off in the long run. So tightening up that section before you get to the guys in the locker room, that stayed the way it was for a while. Months maybe before you realized that some things had to no, go? No, not really. I did my first pass on and then had a cut that I was pretty happy with. Then JD and I worked on it for a while. And once we got a cut that we liked, largely it stayed the same. What did you find you have to temp with? Good question. This film was entirely different than what I'm used to. I oftentimes do a temp score and I love doing that. And I love finding the right voice of what the music should be. I enjoy that process. In this particular case, the director, JD, had already selected his composer and she was on board. And so we did have some temp music, but very little. She was starting right at the top and looking at cutscenes and writing scores for the appropriate scene. Score would change and it would morph and it would become more what JD had wanted. When we did our first preview, I think we had one temp cue in that she just couldn't quite get to in time. I've heard a couple of editors who were able to never deal with temp score. I've never had it quite this early. I'm used to, and often case, the composer's not even hardly selected until you pretty much lock picture. And then you fall into that terrible realm of temp love and that you have cues that just work, even though you know you're going to change it. And of course, then of course you can't use it. It's all fine, but you get so connected to it that when you hear the real deal, it's not as great. It doesn't hit the places that it used to hit. And it's oftentimes why composers don't want to even hear what you had. The flight footage and the VFX stuff, how did you deal with that? Did you have previs to deal with? Were you putting in shots from other movies? We had no shots from other movies. So how did this work? We had an entire aerial unit. The movie was shot back in Savannah, Georgia. But we had an aerial unit in central Washington state in January when all the snow was out there that we needed to shoot for when the movie is in Korea with all the snow. So the aerial unit was three or four Corsairs and helicopters and real MiG fighters. And they would shoot two sorties a day. And we did this virtually for months. It was a huge undertaking. And when I would come in the morning, I would go to my assistant, Russell, I go, so how much dailies did we get from a unit? And he goes, oh yeah, you got two and a half, three hours. Okay, great. How much from the aerial? 17 hours. Because there would be six cameras on the plane and they would go up twice. It was so much. 
it was oftentimes six planes wide and I only really had three. So one of the things that I would do is I took from the storyboards, the line drawings of one of the planes and would literally key it in because the shot was framed for the three planes and then room for the additional three planes. And then I would put in this hand-drawn plane and track it. And it was amazing. It worked so well. So we went through this process of everything was storyboarded in terms of all of the sequences that right here, this plane peels off this way. And in the next shot, this plane does this with this, it's all storyboarded. And so we had so many options for every storyboard chunk. And then there was what we would call non-board where a plane would do an amazing turn or a this or a that. And we were always pulling out non-boarded shots. So it was a tremendous amount of footage to sift through, but we pretty much had everything we wanted. Most everything in the movie is real. There's an additional plane added or two or three, but the principal planes were almost all real. DNAG did our visual effects and they basically got to a place where you could not tell the difference between the real plane and the fake plane, which is moving. Something as simple as that, where you have two planes and they're moving around, you think it's easy for them. It's very hard that it, the motion and that it looks real and all of a sudden, oh, they're married. They would never be married. They're always moving on their own plane mm -hmm. and moving around. It's interesting though, that you had the actual footage. I'm sure that was affected you instead of having, looking at previs, for example. There were sequences where we would, I would slug in the previs until I could really find the shot that we needed. And there were a couple of sequences where they were landing on the aircraft carrier. A good portion of those shots were, I didn't have them. So mm -hmm. I used my hand drawn out in the distance when the plane is coming in, there's no plane back there. So mm -hmm. I had my little plane out there and I would move it and track it. And it, it did what it was supposed to do. And then of course, DNAG would replace it. It was great. You were cutting in Premiere, correct? Yeah, it was great. We had a great time. Being that it was during COVID, Russell, my first, and then JD, we never were in the same room until, I don't want to say a year in, but it was like seven months later. And in fact, Russell, I had never met in person. Hmm. How much actual interaction do you need to have with your assistants? socially a fair amount yeah we were constantly talking and asking for this and what's the status of that and one of the things that russell did which made it great we were using lucidlink as the means by which we were syncing our projects together each location had dailies locally but syncing the project was done through lucid and we were doing that for a while we weren't using evercast at that stage that much we didn't need to but we were using Lucid. But every time I needed to talk to Russell, I'd have to call him or I'd have to text him or I'd have to FaceTime him or whatever. And it was a big pain in the butt. So he hooked up Discord for us. He designated a button on my keyboard. So whenever I needed to talk to Russell, it was like a PL. I'd hit the button and go, hey, Russell, when do we get that? Or what's the status on this? And he would hit me back. That actually completely changed how efficient we were. It really was as if we were in the same facility. That's really interesting remote workflow and assistant workflow. It was as efficient as you could be. I think down the road, I would like to look into 
cloud-based media, but he had also written software so that as dailies came into him, it was automatically updating to my drive in the background. I never knew it was happening. I could see that the drive was hitting. Mm -hmm. I could see that it was happening, but it was always backing up. It was always updating. If someone else in this, one of the other assistants or music or whatever was adding stuff to our system, it was pushing out to me automatically. So within a couple of minutes I had, I was in sync. Everyone was always being updated. And worked seamlessly. Did you work in Adobe projects? Productions, yeah. We were the first one to use it on only the Brave. It worked great. It was a first version and it had some kinks in it, but it's just gotten better and better. It's very similar to Avid's. Bins are locked and it works just great. Do you notice a difference in speed or the stability of Premiere Sense Productions? Because Film projects can just get to be huge. Now, if I need something or I need him to release a reel, and even when we're using Lucid or if it's local, and I say, can you release reel two? I just look down, there's a little lock on it, and then boom, virtually instantly it disappears. No, it's no works. issue at all. Thing of interest too was I had never used Evercast before. So when JD and I started the director's cut, I was intrigued to see if, is this efficient? Would it be frustrating? Is it going to be, am I going to be able to stay up to what I'm normally used to? Mm. What's going to be like? And very long story short, it was great. It was weird. It was you had JD on a monitor over here. And then I had my edit system here and we're just talking. And I think the only negative is that I have to wear headsets. And that was fun. Great. I've talked to other people about Evercast and they say it's weird because you're looking at your director face to face instead of having them someplace else side by side, for example, or sitting behind you or. I in fact did that in that I had my monitors here in front of me and I had JD on a monitor over actually where the chair is that normally a director would be sitting. So when we would have the conversation, then I had the camera here, but then if I talk to him, he's looking at the side of my face. So then I move the camera over there along with the monitor. That makes sense. So when I would want to talk to him, I would just do that. It made it nicer. It's different, but it was fine. That's a monitor placement for an Evercast session. That's very interesting that how very to do that. You do it the way yeah. you're used to it. He's usually sitting on this side of me. I'm going to put the monitor and the camera. It, it made it real. One of the things I love talking about is this idea of how important it is to set up the characters and set up that you care about them. So basically talk to me about balancing the amount of time you take to set up characters, build the fact that the audience cares about them, but we got to get to the airplane stuff. We got to get to the action. We got to get to the core of this movie. One of the issues I sometimes have with some movies that have way too much action is that you don't seem to have enough time in developing the characters and developing the relationships between the different characters. Russell actually did a calculation and we were, I think something in the area of 40% action and 60% drama. I think when you get to that 50% range and then when it goes way beyond that is when you start to feel it in terms of the story, you don't feel like all of the characters and some mm -hmm. of them are very just surface because you just don't have any time to do it. Action is very exciting, but it gets old really quick unless you care about the characters. 
And if you don't have that relationship, and God forbid something bad happens, if you've not established that person and you really have laid down a personality of that person, then when that bad thing happens, it's, oh, that's too bad. I was really familiar with that when I did Band of Brothers, because the title, the story is about the relationship. And if you look at devotion, what is devotion? It's the same thing for the most part in that it's the relationship in devotion. It's the relationship between Jesse and his love of aviation, his respect for the military and his wife and his daughter. It's varying forms of devotion. When I first started the project, I'd heard of the book, but I had not read it at that time. I'm going, was this going to be religious? One could say it is to a certain extent, it's the devotion to something. And you have to have the time, like you're talking about those scenes around the table, that kitchen table with Daisy and Jesse, that the scene with Daisy and Tom, where she says, can you do me a favor? It's the Daisy character. She is the person that almost steers the drama and the emotion of the whole story. Does that help you to have that figured out that she's directing the action? What is that doing for you? It definitely does. It's not just the two guys, which it is. And so much of it is, but she's the one that really, to me, every scene that she's in is just amazing. That scene at the end with her and Tom in Washington, where he comes over and sits with her. Wow. Yeah, that's a killer She's scene. so great. It actually starts off like that. Tom figures out the importance of her character when they're right. flying together, right? And they make the pass and he's like, wait a minute, why are we flying over here? Yeah. He figures it out. It's all about yeah, exactly. her. exactly. I love it. Yeah. This note might make sense to you. Learning the Widowmaker sequence with training voiceover. Oh, that's a fun scene. That scene, it's a montage thing that it starts with Jesse studying and then Tom studying over there. That scene went in nine different directions. And then JD came up with this idea of some actual training footage that we had with planes. And actually it was a training footage of how you operate your Corsair and how do you change this oil and how do you adjust this? But the thing that was so wonderful is that guy's voice. It was just the classic instructional video kind of voice. And I said, JD, we're never going to ADR this. You can try, but you will not get this. And I think he did try and he didn't get it. Yeah. And this is the real deal. I don't even think the original intent was to put that audio in it. We were just trying different ways and we had many different versions. And then when that one hit and JD came up with this idea, let's use that audio and then recut it. It just, oh my God, this is great. And that was audio from a real training video? Yeah. On a Corsair that he was talking about. What were some of the reasons why the other ways that you tried to put that sequence together changed? Some of them were, were really good. And I think that a couple of times I went, oh, we're going to not use that. Oh, I really liked what we had done. Mm -hmm. But when we hit this, you saw that this was the better way to attack. It's just a process. I work with Craig Brewer a lot. And he's notorious for you have something cut to music or whatever. It looks fantastic and you think it's so great. And then he goes, I have an idea. Let's try it with this piece of music and recut the whole thing. And I go, oh no, I really like this. 
And of course, he's always right and mm -hmm. it's better. I love that idea of how you deal with notes because, of course, there's always great reticence to change something, especially if you think it's good, right? If you're on the right track and somebody says, let's do something different, it's interesting how often they're right. <laughs> so often they're right. Occasionally, you like the old version a little more. Mm -hmm. Occasionally, your system will come in like the way it was before. But most of the time, almost all the time, they're better. The whole process is you're getting to know the characters and particularly for an editor who's come in quasi late. Mm -hmm. They've been living with it forever and Years. they know the characters. They know all of the backstory and all of the stuff that as an editor, you start cutting it. And of course you've read the script, but you really don't know the characters. But as you travel down the road, there are many times where you'll go to a director and you'll go, this scene that I cut six months ago, I know this character so much better. I would like to recut it. Mm -hmm. I would like just the timing of it. Or I just go ahead and do it and then show the director. And he goes, oh yeah, it's a lot better. It's that catch up. It takes me a while to get it into my bloodstream. My wife puts it this way. You're always searching for the heartbeat. And once you find it and you've got the heartbeat working really well, and then maybe when the studio gets involved or you're going to previews, it turns into, you're not looking for the heartbeat. You're trying to save the heartbeat. Mm. You're trying to preserve the heartbeat because through the changes that happen down the road, all of a sudden things that were working before start to get sideways. One of the things to talk about how long to be in something, and this probably changed as you went through, but like something like the casino sequence, they go to Korea and they're in a casino for a while. And it's a great sequence. And I was happy to be in the casino sequence, but I would guess that you could expand that or contract it fairly much if you wanted to. So what tells Correct. you we're in the casino sequence for the right amount of time? There's very little of the casino sequence from the very beginning when he's walking down the beach and he runs into Elizabeth Taylor all the way to the end after the fight. I thought there were a couple of beats in the story that could have gone, but it ended up nothing was lifted. We did some line lifting in certain parts, but for the most part, there was very little lifted from that whole sequence. And the interesting thing is I like that sequence a lot. I think it's great. It's fun, mm -hmm. but it's fine. In the previews, everyone says that's our favorite sequence. It's sexy and it's fun. And yeah. it also gives you a little lift. Talk about that. The You've got these heavy moments and you've got a story that can go scary or dark or sad or whatever, but you've got place that lifts the story up, gets the audience to be able to put a smile on their face for a minute. Talk about the value of that. If you've come out of an intense moment, you have to give yourself the breath before you come into, as you were saying, a lighter moment, whatever. So you have to build either in a series of shots or slow it back down a little so that you can then go into it. It's a rhythm thing. It's the old hit the gas, hit the brakes and when to do it and when you're coming up to it to prepare for it so that it doesn't feel jarring because sometimes you need that breath. You need that moment to just be able to catch your breath and even think about what you had just seen rather than quickly go into it. Briefing the Marines about the attack and when mm -hmm. to be on the guy giving the briefing compared to the reactions. I'm always interested when you go to a reaction. So there's a guy up there and he's explaining the mission. 
How much of that has to play on him and how much are you going, I know I've got this great shot of him thinking or him thinking. When are you doing those reactions? Why? Most of the time on a scene like that, if you have the footage of people's reactions that are strong, I think that to hear the words and see the words, how they're affecting people who are watching is highly more powerful than being on the person. So I would look at a scene like that and rough out, even by literally cutting black. And before I find the shots that I necessarily want to put in there and just rough in where I want to come to Savoli or where do I want to be on other people. Now, sometimes you don't have the footage. I think on one of those scenes, when they were in the meeting room, there was lots of wonderful footage. When they were in that hangar area, there wasn't a lot of great footage. There was some. I think that was a case where I had to be on Savoli a little longer than I wanted, but it worked out. I love that time. I also love it. People smoking is always a wonderful thing. How to use it, not call attention to it, but it adds an interesting flavor. I was just talking to Lee Smith about this idea of being on someone and being off someone and how the information they're giving you lands differently. Are you concerned about, hey, if the leader is telling you, if we are at this point at three o'clock, everybody dies, do you have to be on the guy saying that if it's yeah. just super important? You do have to tread very carefully because if it's highly pertinent information and you really want it to drive home, then yeah, you definitely have to be on them. It takes away from it a little. And if it's just talk before, but it's not as completely pertinent. You can be off of them, but yes, mm -hmm. you have to be very careful. I was looking at a scene from a friend of mine who was cutting something and they were off the person. Just it's one time I had seen it. Mm -hmm. I'm going, don't you think that's important to be on? So I think you have to be very careful. Yeah. Lee talked. And then it has more impact. Yeah, exactly. Yep, exactly. He talked about doing some film doctoring on movies that he'd come on to. And he said, I didn't even remember that piece of information happened in the scene because Correct. it was on a reaction. As soon as you put the important information on the person speaking, then everybody remembers it. You know what it is? It's almost like oftentimes how I cut, I cut motivational cutting in that when you can do it, if someone starts to talk and you wait for them to bring their head around, that then takes you to that person, it makes it more important. And also adds to a certain degree of the continuity and geography of the room. If you just cut to it before, now sometimes you can't. Sometimes they wait too long before they move their head or there's a million games you can play. But the film tells you where to cut. You would love to say that it's all because the editor's so great. I think the film tells you where to cut. Now, you don't always get it to work out the way you want. You go, God, I sure wish I could have cut earlier, but didn't work out that way. The film tells you where to But the editor has to be able to hear it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The editor has to be able to hear when the film tells you when to cut. Let's talk about sound design as part of rhythm, right? There's a pace and a rhythm that you're trying to cut. Sound is really a big part of that. Talk to me about that in a battle scene or a fight scene. Sound is 49% of the cut. And I believe wholeheartedly that the sound design and not sound design, like what does it sound like, 
but the rhythms of what's happening and when certain things are happening, that the sound effect happens, could be a door close, it could be in anything, but happens at a certain word, it punctuates, you can use those kinds of things. But I use sound on a lot of different weird levels. When I'm cutting a scene and I'm just so in the weeds and so trying to get a cut done, that's just the roughed out version. At a certain place, I want to clear my head of it. And so I keel into sound mm -hmm. for an hour. And I start just building some beds and starting to play with some big stroke sounds that just fill the room a little bit and give it a quality that you feel like it's real. I don't get into hard effects. I don't get into replacing door closes or do anything like that. But just for a while, get away from the cut. Then I go back into the cut. And now things just feel a little more real. And then I start playing with the cut, moving things around and then replacing takes. And then I go back into sound again. Mm -hmm. So that becomes this thing where it goes editorial and then sound and then editorial and then sound. And then sometimes then I'll move into music. So it'll be way towards the end where it's editing sound. And then I start chasing up with it with music. Talk me about the MIG edit. Oh, in the canyon? Yeah. JD was just so great because he had an answer for everything. And most good directors always do. That's most of their job, right? Is just answering questions. A little bit. Yeah. It's great when they know the answer. The story of Tom going down another canyon. And I certainly saw that because those were real. The Meg and that one Corsair, the Tom's plane peels off that way. And then the Mig follows Jesse going that way. So they're going on opposite directions, coming around to the center point. That was a scene we messed around with for a long time, mm. getting it right. A million questions that I would have for JD, wouldn't a MIG catch up? He goes, the problem is the MIG has to slow so far down that it becomes almost unsafe because it is so much faster. Mm -hmm. You would think that, of course, the MIG should be able to take it out. He goes, no, it doesn't work that way. When you're cutting it initially, I don't really have... JD to really ask these questions. I could call him and he'd call me back. So I'm trying to figure it out. And that scene was hard. To have it all come together at that right moment was really great. Inspired to ask a question about the fact that you said, I could have called him to get the answer. Isn't there something in your head saying, I cannot constantly pester my director? Yeah. Again, the being behind, so to speak, why does it take so long to cut a scene? And to some extent, sometimes if it's a complex scene, you spend a lot of time trying to figure it out. And it's a little bit of a jigsaw puzzle. Of course, it's a jigsaw puzzle because you're adding shots in that, but I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the jigsaw puzzle of trying to figure out the logic of things. And why does this happen? And why doesn't this happen over here? And then you start looking at the footage, you, oh, I see it's coming around that corner. Oh, now I've got to go back and re-edit this. And there are instances where there are scenes that are so complex that I'll call the director and I said, I really think you and I should just cut this together because I know you and I'll nail it faster. Here's a question for you is about intercutting, right? Yeah. There's stuff going on up in the air. And we also have another storyline of guys in the trenches, essentially. Was that edited as it was scripted, or did you find you needed to manipulate the intercutting of 
the two? It was pretty much storyboarded and or scripted largely. Now we would cheat and we would add an extra one or that kind of thing, depending on the performance and stuff. At a certain point you go, it's time that they save them. We need to collapse those two more beats and let's just go to it because it feels like milking it too much. When you've got all the great footage and you've got the music is crescendoing and everything, it's time to go. I don't want to do a spoiler, even though the movie's been out for a while, but essentially a big climactic thing happens. And then the movie goes on for a little while longer. Is there a clock yeah. ticking in your head? What are you thinking after that point where you're like, how long is the audience going to stay with me before we wrap this up? There was a side of me that thought maybe we should get out a little earlier or we should have not ended it necessarily ended it any differently, but some of the in-between. But J.D. felt very passionate about it and his strong belief of being true to the real story and being respectful to the family. They were involved. They were seeing cuts. They were looking at it and they were very pleased with the final decisions. Just love those kind of longer drawn out Lord of the Rings ending, ending, then another ending and another ending. And I think that sometimes they're great because you almost don't want the movie to end because you're enjoying it. You mentioned earlier that you had not read the book, but that you did at some point. At what point did you read the book and why did you feel like you needed it? I didn't think I finished it either. I thought it would have been helpful. And so I started the book and then at a certain point, I just became so overwhelmed with dailies and the daily requirements of getting stuff done that I just lost sight of it. Maybe someday I'll finish it. It'll be interesting, actually. Sometimes people want to read the book or probably editor that they wanted to have and you didn't have to worry about landing the job. But sometimes people are like, oh, for the interview with the director, I want to make sure I... That's a good point. No, I had done another film for the same company for Black Label and it was only The Brave. And they had given me a call and said, are you interested in doing this? And so I read the script and I went, oh my God, this would be great. And JD, I had met once a couple of years before. Some people will say... I don't want the source material in my head. There's that. Absolutely. Sometimes I don't even like to go on set. I don't want to see that it's only a set. But was there a favorite scene or a most difficult scene for you to cut? One of my absolute favorite scenes is the beach scene. Before he goes off to war, characters are just so great. The daughter playing in front. The emotion is just so real. She won't see him again. Now, granted, that's not the moment that he shipped off, but... That was the end. I love that one. But the ending of the movie, that whole setup of those shots were just so amazing. JD oftentimes said, we have to be careful because we have so many gorgeous shots that we can't make this aerial candy. We have to be very selective. Not to say that you can't use a beautiful shot. You have to look for a shot that maybe has more edge to it. But at the same time, don't fall in love with the shots too much. Don't make them so gorgeous. You've got a story to tell and the story is more important than the visuals. That sequence that you were talking about with a announcer talking, if I could, I would have made it twice as long, but you want people to want more. Or that first time that they float, when they were going down the beach with all those amazing shots, there were like five shots and it was very painful. Just to get it a little tighter. Yeah. So, we just saw three other gorgeous shots. So mm -hmm. yeah, that's a great shot, but that'll be for 
the return to devotion. Let me ask you a question between the two of us with everybody else listening in. Talk to me about, I'm assuming you have an agent, but so often the projects are coming to you without the need of the agent. Talk to me about the value of an agent. Oh, yeah. I've been doing this a long time and I have relationships with directors and with studios and with producers. But simultaneously, if I look at the work that I do, a percentage of it is through previous relationships. But a number of them come through my agent and my agent knows exactly what I like and knows the types of projects that interest me and will hear about a project way in the embryonic stage when it's a year away from shooting and is starting to maneuver to be able to set up that interview. So there's that. It makes a big difference because I'm working. I don't have time to be looking for the next project. And yes, so-and-so could call me and say, hey, what are you doing? But sometimes you need someone else looking for other projects or new directors that you haven't worked with before or different studios. There's a whole business side and negotiating your deal and all of the business aspects of it, which you would think once you start the job, it does all fall in place, but there's always something and they're totally involved and they're dealing with the studio. It's a very valuable asset. I think it helps expand the people you work with hearing things that you would have not heard about. They also were the ones that received the phone calls. Hey, we're starting this show. We're looking for, how would you know they could call you? I don't get a lot of cold calls from people that I've never worked with before. Yeah, I was thinking more of the relationships you've already built. You know, that you don't need that guy to get you this job, but there's so much more that he's doing. Like the negotiating is part of it, right? That's the good cop, bad cop thing. It's that he knows the going prices, that kind of thing. I didn't have an agent for a very long time, but I also knew that at a certain point it was going to be necessary. You cut on film, didn't you or no? Yeah. I came from television background, working at a television station down in San Diego. And then a gentleman in San Diego had a commercial production company, did industrials and commercials down in San Diego. He decided to put in editorial. He used to rent space at the station to edit his commercials. And I would work with him. And then he decided to put in his own facility, his own edit room. And he hired me to build the room and also cut. So that was one of my very first things. And I did that for a number of years. And then I saw opportunities up in Los Angeles. And was that TV cutting video, like quarter beta, digi beta, one inch? Yes, it was all of that. And it was two inch. And when I was first starting, I was working on Ampex 2000s and AVR ones, all of those formats I was involved. When I first moved to LA, I worked for NBC News and NBC Sports and NBC Promotion. They're separate companies, so to speak, but I would be hired. I would be moved around at NBC and I was there for a while. I had a ball, just had a great time. Then I just saw an opportunity is because I really wanted to do drama. But at that time, all drama, be it television or feature, was all done in film. And I was electronic, but I moved, I went freelance and Moved all over the place doing music videos and specials and comedies and varying things. There was a river between electronic and film. 
And how do you get over here? Slowly but surely, the river just disappeared. And they started looking at people who had an electronic understanding because on at least a post-production level, it was the way it's going. And so the somewhat negative thing of being an electronic editor became the asset rather than a negative. How did you make your jump to your first narrative project? It's just hearing things. I was working through an edit facility and they were going to be editing ABC after school special. And they had picked an editor and I got the gig. I don't even know how I got it. And I remember because I was my own assistant. It's one of the things that's interesting about the old world of editorial in the film world, you had an editor, but you had assistants who were in the room with that editor. And they're of course taking the dailies and they're logging them and doing all of that heavy lifting, but simultaneously they get to be in the room and watch how an editor processes their dailies and how the process happens. Being that I was my own assistant, I remember starting to cut this and I go, I have no idea what I'm doing. I have no idea if this is a good way to do it or a bad way to do it because I had no point of reference. But I think it could be argued even today, I don't know if I'm a fast editor or a slow editor because I'm never in a room with another editor. Most of us aren't. I, yeah, I just, so I don't know if my technique is good or bad. I've complained about it once talking to a director about this. And he goes, it works. I like how you cut. You get it done. It's fine. Don't worry about it. And did you cut that after school special in video editing? That was on a CMX 3400 on three quarter inch that we would master it. We would do an online later, but it was three quarter inch. Me too. We have very similar stories and I almost ended up in San Diego. I was going to be a promotion manager at a TV station in San Diego. Went down there for the interview and everything. What station? I can't remember. It was up on a hill. My dad was a general manager and he was a general manager of KCST. They were up on a hill. Yeah. yeah maybe he didn't like me. No, I don't. <laughs> Probably was the ABC affiliate because I worked for an ABC station before that. Okay. So it's very possible that it was the ABC affiliate in San Diego. Yeah. All right, Billy. As always, I loved our conversation. Thank you so much for great Absolutely. wisdom and good luck on your current project. That's it for Out of the Cut this week. Thank you so much for listening. Again, if you'd prefer to read this interview with visual support and clips and trailers, head on over to borisfx.com slash artofthecut, all one word, or borisfx.com slash AOTC, where there's a ton of great expert content for filmmakers of all types. Also, check out my book, Art of the Cut, conversations with film and TV editors for a topic-driven curated look at the craft of editing. Thanks to Billy Fox, ACE. Thanks to Ijaz Nuhu for editing today's podcast. And thanks to our partner, Boris Effects, and to our sponsor, Jump Desktop. Be sure to check them all out at borisfx.com and jumpdesktop.com slash cut. I'm Steve Hallfish. Thanks for listening. And please tell all the editors and filmmakers that you know that to get more great Art of the Cut interviews every week, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app.